We're going to be in Amos chapter 8. We're going to be in Amos chapter 8. And, uh, but before we get into Amos chapter 8, we want to do a little update on what's going on in the world, if you didn't know. What's going on in the Middle East, in our country? And there are some concerns. There are some concerns, I'll be very honest with you. I'm very concerned. The spiritual battle that goes on in our world is definitely a, at an all-time high. Put it that way, at an all-time high. Am I afraid of terrorism and things like that? Well, yeah, there's always a concern. But more than anything, it's, I believe it's what, uh, what the Scripture talks about, the restraining of evil in the world and the lawlessness that accompanies it. These are all things that are talked about in Scripture. And it's not just one nation. It's the nations of the world that this is going on. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his grace, and then we'll get into a little bit of the update. And then Amos chapter 8, Lord God, we are so thankful to be before your presence, and before the congregation. Before you, Lord, we thank you for every blessing and goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the cross and the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he cleanses, his blood cleanses from all sin. And we praise you this evening because you sent your Holy Spirit after your son rose and and ascended. You sent your spirit into the world, the spirit of your son into our hearts so that we would cry out, Abba, Father. And so, Lord, we praise you this evening that the ministry of Jesus and the, and the work of Jesus is being done by your people through the Holy Spirit, which he inhabits all his people. Lord, we ask you this evening to help us, to help us to go on with the commission that you called each and individual, each and every one of us individually, gifting and calling. Please, Lord God, help us to be busy in your work. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have never seen quite this stuff in our, in our world. I, I've been a Christian for 20-some years now, and I've been following biblical prophecy for some time now, ever since uh, maybe shortly after I, was, I became a Christian. And uh, things like this always existed. You know, people protested against Israel, protested against this, and, and pro, uh, pro-Palestinians, pro-Iran. There was always, always something happened. But it didn't happen this way. It's happening all over the world, even though it is quite clear that the protests are pro, not just pro-people in general, but pro-terrorism. That's really what they're for. It's pro-terrorism, meaning that people that can commit crimes and commit horrible atrocities are being praised as people that are justified in doing these things. And we talked about it last week. In favor of Hamas in favor of killings, in favor of not just wars. That's one thing if a war. If one military group came against another military group, wars are evil. They're horrible things. But they are part of the end-time scenario. What we witnessed the last few months or a few weeks now, it's going after people, individual atrocities, people, babies, moms, grandmothers. And this is what it's being praised now, it's happening in our colleges. I don't know what's wrong with our colleges. One thing I would say, if you don't have to go to college, don't. Um, it's a joke now, but it used to be, it wasn't that funny. But, you know, people would like to get their kids into Harvard, into um, Yale. And the joke is, if you got your, kill, your kid into Harvard or Yale, you know, where did you go wrong? Because <laughs> uh, Many, many of the things that we see are done by, are being done in these high-end, we call it high-end elite schools, 
where many of the things that we've seen that we're, we'd be totally shocked. Uh, students that don't agree with them are being harassed. Some are being beaten. Uh, you see things like this, which I have no idea what this means. So somebody can help me what that means. I, I'll, be, I'll be very happy. I don't understand it. Even I don't even know, but I thought it was uh, humorous because a lot of these college students, high-end education, right? High-end IQ, uh, don't even know what they're arguing about. Don't even know what exactly why they would do it. But they're very anti-Israeli, anti-Jewish demonstrations, much more than just pro-Palestinian. Now, we're going to play this little video. This is in Texas. This is a college in Texas. Uh, a man who went to um, speak to the college students about basically his little boy was being taken away from his ex-wife. And his ex-wife wanted him to be a girl. He's a little boy, wants him to be a girl. And he went to defend a position at a college campus to say, girls are girls and boys are boys, and this is why. I don't know why you have to explain that to college students, but this is the day in which we live in. Well, he was harassed. He was literally, literally almost beaten by the student faculty. And um, I'll just kind of keep a little excerpt. Is that Okay. Okay. This is uh, after they got aggressive and tried to take his camera because they wanted to film this. This is what ensued. The exchange went, well, you grabbed my camera. He grabbed my camera. No, it's a she. No, it's a he. No, it's a she. And they just it went crazy after that. The most, obviously, you know, some of the stuff can be, you know, quite comical. But the, 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 the thing that drew me more to pay attention to this was the exchange was called an assault. They filed an assault against the person who disagreed on the gender. This is what college students are today. It's an assault. If you disagree with them, it is violence. Remember the, the, the old saying? Well, it's not that old. Words are violence now. You disagree with them on gender, it's violence. Now, the Bible says, professing to be wise, they become fools. Read Romans 1. God gives people over to a debased mind that they can't even understand very simple things that we would think logically, being reasonable. And the Bible actually explains in Romans 1 how they, they will confuse the natural use of the human body, that the women will go toward women and men toward men, and they will commit what is unthinkable, what is sinful before God. Here's another one that was really interesting. Now, many of the leftist Marxist organizations have joined the, the march uh, anti-Jewish, anti uh, pro-Hamas. Now, don't, don't, don't confuse the issue. They say Palestine, but it's, it's Hamas. It's at, the, at, the, at the core issue, it is Hamas. It is not an issue of land. I'll, I'll show you in a minute. It's not an issue of land. It is an issue of the eradication of a certain people. So if they care so much about race, wouldn't you want to see that protecting the Jewish people would be something that they would do? But here's one that is completely out of left field. Queers for, queers for Palestine. I've been to Muslim countries and absolutely zero, zero tolerance for any other sexuality besides heterosexuality, uh, which is interesting because it, it, it actually makes some people on the right be more open to Islam because they're very, very hard on homosexuality. But here's a homosexual group, Queries for Palestine. Believe me, they exist. It's a real group. 
marching along with people that would literally eradicate them if they had a chance. It's only the thin veil of our Constitution and the rule of law, which you can make a case doesn't exist anymore here in our country, that actually keeps them from being eradicated. If they were to do this in Gaza, two minutes, it's over. In Iran, Saudi Arabia, put them in any other Muslim countries, it wouldn't be tolerated. In fact, when the World Cup of soccer was around in 2022 last year, um, many of the advertisements had to take away any kind of LGBT um, semblance of LGBT support because it was in Qatar, and Qatar does not, it is, pen- it is a punishable, uh, and it's a penalty of death to be with another man or another woman in the case of homosexual encounters. So this is one of the bizarre things that we're seeing is radical groups on one extreme joining with another extreme against a certain people. Here's another one that's interesting. This is from the UC, California, University of California system. Ethnic studies faculty asking the whole UC system to to the administration of the UC system, please do not use the word terrorism. Please do not use the word terrorism. Do not condemn terrorism to describe the Hamas attack. Now, it's one thing if you wanted to talk about, okay, Israel, it's defending itself, and, and people argue on both sides. Of the, that, that's not my point today. Certainly in war, there's been horrible wars. There's, the whole Middle East has been full of wars. I, I showed you last time from 1948 till now. It's never been really issue about the land. It's about the eradication of Israel. They're asking the UC system not to use the word terrorism. So if somebody's protesting for Hamas, they're allowed not to use the word terrorism. If somebody uses the word terrorism, they could be basically seen as a threat because you're falsely accusing their pro-Hamas stands as a terrorist stand, and they don't want you to use those words. See how quickly they change the language. So now pro-terrorism means pro, I don't know, pro-freedom fighters. I guess that's the that's, that's new word, freedom fighters. It's not just the U.S. This is the, uh, a South African leader, third largest party in South Africa. His, his name is Malima. And if you know anything about the South African party, after uh, obviously apartheid left and Nelson Mandela and the, and the ENC came and all that stuff, this is the same man who just a couple months ago was calling at a stadium full of people, a soccer stadium full of people calling for the eradication of white people in South Africa. Openly, openly shoot white people is what he said. Just shoot them, just shoot them. Now, he's, he's excited about Hamas. And listen to what he says, rallying the troops in South Africa. There is nothing wrong Hamas did. This folk tongues and people speaking in parables and we don't know what they are hearing, what they are saying, it's wrong. When you are oppressed, the only option you have is to fight. And that's what Hamas is doing. They are fighting for their freedom. Mandela did the same thing, took up the... There's nothing that they did, it's wrong. And when you're oppressed, I didn't bore you with the rest of the speech, it was rather horrible. If you're oppressed, you have the right to pick up a gun and shoot somebody. That's what he said. If you are oppressed, you have the right, especially if they're white, especially if they're Jews, um, go after them. Now, when they meet by white, it's Christian white. Because remember, the, the, the white Anglo-Saxon uh, community in South Africa was largely Reformed Dutch. It was the Reformed Dutch church. 
uh, which they blame for a lot of the things that happened, apartheid and all that stuff. Now, there's a lot of blame to go around in sort of apartheid. Apartheid was terrible. And I supported ministries during um, in apartheid that, uh, that wanted nothing to do with apartheid. I supported ministries that only uh, supported both black and white in South Africa because there's quite a bit of that stuff going on. Uh, even later on, after apartheid left, there was still that sentiment. So I never supported apartheid. It was horrible. It was evil. But this is evil as well. The eradication of white South Africans? Well, pro-Palestinian mob attacks, all this stuff, you would think, you know, this is terrible. How many of you guys think this is in Gaza? No, nobody here? How many things is this in, um, well, I ask you, what, what do you think this is? USA? Oh, you guys are funny. Any, any particular state? I'll make it a little challenging. No. It is Minnesota. Minnesota, this is the, uh, uh, of course, Omar, uh, Ilham Omar's district. People flying around, pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas flags. By the way, the pro-Hamas flags, as well as the Saudi Arabian flags, is, it basically gives praise to Allah. It's praise to Allah and a global jihad. Uh, well, if South Africa doesn't think nothing's wrong with Hamas, if, if our college students don't think nothing's wrong with Hamas, if a uh, pro-Palestinian mob attacks people, and th- this is, I'm not going to show you the video of this one, um, but this is, this is what's going on in Europe. It's, it's, we've seen this more and more. Three men uh, pretending to deliver a package come into a woman's house in France and barge in and tie her up and, um, and rob the place and, and violently attacked her. Why? She was Jewish. She was a Jewish woman in France. Uh, this is in Illinois. Um, I'll play this, I can't play this like a, like a five-second clip. Uh, a pro-Hamas protest turned violent. Police was there to save this man's life. What did he do? What a horrible thing did he do that he got all those people riled up. He was a Christian. And he told them, I am a Christian. I, I don't support them. That, that's what happened. They, they turned against him. That's all he did. I am a Christian. I'm not here to support Hamas. And, of course, this is the next thing that happens. He is attacked. By the way, I, I, I took a risk. I, I, I wasn't even going to show you this, but uh, my good friend David convinced me I should show it because we should do it because YouTube's been censoring everything. So there's a bit of a risk tonight uh, if the video is taken down. <laughs> YouTube seems to be on a rampage. We live in an interesting time, isn't it? A very bizarre time. A very uh, a time that I've never seen this before. It's like a demonic entity has been released in the world, or several in the world. And institutions, societies are completely given over to a violent and completely lawless reaction toward this. And it's only gaining momentum. It is not the end yet. It is not the end yet. And, uh, and it's very anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, and ultimately anti-Christ. Remember, the Bible speaks of three things about the Antichrist. It is the spirit of the Antichrist, it is many Antichrists, and then there's the two beasts. They're the two beasts of Revelation. So those three things have to be kept in mind when we're thinking about what kind of zeitgeist, what kind of spirit of the world that we live in today. 
will raise a very lawless, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish spirit, and ultimately will be anti-Christian, anti-Christ. It's what the, 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 the epitome of an anti-Christ spirit is that what you see today, of violence and lawlessness for no reason at all whatsoever. They seem justified in it, and if they didn't like it, I understand that people that don't like what Israel does, but the reality of it is, do we have to kill other people in order to do that? Well, an interesting time to be alive. This is one microcosm of it. An elderly pro-life woman faces 11 years in jail for protests at a clinic. All she did was pray, stand outside, and um, she didn't want to move for the cops to, to get around her. And uh, she was accused of blocking the entrance and all the things that they do. 11 years. Facing 11 years. A man kills another man. While he was sleeping, Gabriel Brown killed Austin Slayer and uh, a Texas State University, I guess one of our wonderful institutions. And he got 90 days. 90 days. Um, he, shot a, he shot a gun through a wall into his room while he was sleeping and um, didn't call the police or an ambulance for help, accident or not. 90 days is not manslaughter. It was an accident for sure, but how come the woman got 11 years and this man got 11, I mean, uh, uh, 90 days? It is an interesting world, isn't it? What's well, a world of no justice and unrighteousness? Just to make matters more interesting, you have what's going on in Gaza. Just a real quick video here of some of the things you might not have heard because uh, the mainstream media won't play this, that uh, there's troops already, American troops and Israeli troops in Gaza, and it's not going so well. A large force of 80 to 100,000 troops on the ground into the region, which means that we're reliant on special forces and right now 2,000 Marines and perhaps 2,000 special forces and special operations forces. That's not going to make much of a dent. And as we've seen quite recently within the last 24 hours or so, uh, some of our special ops forces and Israeli special ops forces went into Gaza to reconnoiter, to plan for where they might want to go to free hostages and, and make an impact. And they were shot to pieces and took heavy losses, as I understand it. I think that's where we're headed. And I don't see that as a win for Israel in any way, shape or form. And I certainly think it's very dangerous for us. I think they're going in into a trap. That place is a trap. I mean, it is going to be heavy casualties. Even if they do try to go up to the terrorist door to door, it's going to be very, there's tunnels, there's underground tunnels that connect to Egypt and to Israel. It's a madness in there. They tried it. They tried it with American troops, not going really well. Hamas is better armed than a lot of people think. Hezbollah is better armed than the North than a lot of people think. Who's been arming them? Obama. Biden, yeah, um, Iran, Russia. This is a war that's going to, there's a centripetal force. You know what a centripetal force is? You have one thing that begins to spin and you begin to pull everything together, pulls everything in toward the center. The Middle East is going to pull every nation in. That's what the Bible says. It eventually is going to pull all nations in. Is it at this time? No, I don't think it is yet. But we're starting to see that it's spinning the centripetal force of prophecy is spinning all nations. Even nations don't want anything to do with this uh, will be affected, whether it's economically, whether it's financially, whether it's the, what, the fact that they have to send troops or, or surveillance or even attacked. Now, the U our U.S. air bases and some of the air bases in Syria 
uh, have been attacked near the Conoco gas fields. This is as of yesterday. Every day, a U.S. A US base is attacked by a drone or some kind of, uh, some kind of weapon by Syria, it's promoted by Iran. And we're very close to declaring war on Iran. This is not going to be good. Now, I'm going to give you some homework. I need you to read Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10. Do you want to know the, the intricacies of, of Persia? Because the Bible does not call it Iran. That was Hitler's name for it. Persia is the biblical name. And in fact, many, many Iranians call themselves Persians. They don't really like to call it Iran because it's sort of a modern name. Persia, Persia, going back to the book of Daniel. And there is something unique about Persia in the last days. It is mentioned many Biblical prophecies include Persia as coming into the land, as being spiritually motivated to destroy the Jews. And there's one entity that it governs over Iran, and Daniel is told about it. It's called the Prince of Persia. So Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10, to tell you that these spiritual, these, these battles are not just some political entities fighting with each other and you know, not knowing what they're doing. There's a, there are spiritual things behind them. There are spiritual principalities some people call them territorial spirits. That's a description of it. The real name is uh, arche in Greek, principalities, powerful demonic rulers that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 that are over nations, over areas, and they motivate these nations to go against each other. What is behind Islam? What is behind Islam? What's the spirit of Islam? When you see the violence and the killing and the rejection of Christ and, and another, another Christ that they put, it's an antichrist, and another book, which is not the Bible, so it's a false book, so it's a false, uh, a false written word of God, a false, a false word of God, a false Jesus. It is the making of, a, of an antichrist religion. Literally, from one of the surahs in, 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 this, in, in, in the Quran, it says, God has no son. You know, Allah is not begotten, nor does he beget. And that's written on the, inside the mosque in, in Israel, inside the Dome of the Rock. It's written there. Literally, you can say without a doubt that because John says in John, 1 John chapter 5, whoever denies the father and the son relationship, what is he? Antichrist, that's right. Islam totally fits that. It denies the father and the son have a relationship. Allah has no son, nor is he begotten, because he doesn't have a son. So it denies that relationship between God and Jesus, it's a false Jesus, a false Messiah, it's a false Christ, it's a false, it's a false word, and it is an abomination. God calls it an abomination, and it's sitting on the Temple Mount today. Even today, it's sitting on the Temple Mount. So, much to learn about Persia, not tonight. And of course, Vladimir Putin, of course, just to make matters worse, Russia conducts a nuclear drill after, basically, the Knesset, not the Knesset, the, uh, um, what do they call theirs? Um, their Congress is called a... No, no, it's not. Oh, man, I just forgot the name. I'll come back in a moment. They, uh, their Congress basically threw out the legislation to ban the test. So they, there's no more banning on basically testing nuclear weapons. So they can test them. They can test them all they want. And so uh, Kremlin, that's what it is. The Kremlin says, forget the legislation, no ban on testing go ahead and proceed on testing some of these nuclear weapons. What do they need to test for if they're not planning on using them? Some people say, well, they, maybe they're saber-rattling. I think that's naive. I think they're getting ready because we've been 
projecting that we're getting ready. Did you see some of the, 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 the laws that they've been passing within Congress? Some of the things about, hey, you know, maybe we should consider first strike capabilities. Maybe we should hold that as part of our weaponry. It's getting really intense, brothers and sisters. It is. And I don't trust this man. And by the looks of the two men behind him, they don't trust him either. Because what he's been saying, it is absolutely insane. It is absolutely insane. And um, what's behind, what's the spirit behind it all? That's my concern more than anything else. This foolish man, the Bible tells us that they're all foolish. Uh, they consider to be wise to become fools. They're all driven by their egos and, and their maniacs. But the spirit behind them, what causes them to do these things. Remember the book of Revelation chapter 16 tells us the spirit of demons go out into the world and they influence the kings of the earth to do what? To make peace? No, to come to war. And where do they go? Anybody know where they go, where the demons tells them to go? Armageddon. Yes, absolutely. Revelation 16. It pushes nations to come to Armageddon. It's all spiritual. Who's in charge? God. Who put hooks into the jaws of uh, Gog and Magog? It's God. God puts them in. Why? He brings the nations in. So in their rebellion, they will come against the Messiah. They will come against Christ. Sounds beyond belief, isn't it? But it is, it is something we're seeing today. The nations of the earth in, 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 in an attack against God's people. Read Psalm 2. They all foam. They're foaming against God and against his anointed. Israel just happens to be the one that's in, in the middle of it. Jerusalem, it's in the middle of their, of, their, of their future plans to destroy the earth. And the Bible says whoever tries to deal with Jerusalem will be severely hurt. So this is where we are today. Let's go to Amos chapter 8 because I think it speaks of our time. The end has come. Amos chapter 8, the end has come. And it has nothing to do with tonight, perhaps, with the, what we just talked about. But nonetheless, Amos talks about the end. The end, and I'll show you what that means because it is going to come to an end, but not necessarily for us. I, have, I wouldn't be of the opinion that the end is tomorrow or next Tuesday or the week after that. I'm not of that opinion. I'm of the, what the scripture calls, the end is not yet. It is part of the end, Jesus said. These things are going to happen, but the end is not yet, Matthew 24. We're in the book of Amos. We're majoring on the minors. We're just the last two chapters to go. And um, I really wanted to finish it tonight, but we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait till November to really finish chapter 9, which is a glorious chapter. Don't miss that one. It's a glorious chapter. And it actually has to do with the New Testament. So that's for next time. But here, Amos is a shepherd. He is a man of the field. He is actually a man who actually takes care of sheep and takes care of trees. So you could see that. And uh, he is not a professional, we call a professional uh, religious leader. He is a shepherd. He's a man of the field. In fact, he confronts the leaders of the day. He confronts the religious leaders of the day. He preaches a message against the sin of Israel, the northern kingdom, about their idolatry. And boy, was there idolatry in that. After many years of idolatry and immorality and the oppression God is going to deal, the oppression on, on people by the kingdom of Israel, God is going to deal with the northern kingdom. It is time, it has come, but he sends Amos, before the end comes, he sends Amos to preach. It's the mercy of God 
to hear God's word before the judgment comes. Why? Because God wants people to repent. He, he, he desires none to perish, but that all come to repentance. Judgment will come. It'll come to nations. It'll come to the whole world. But it doesn't have to come to you. It doesn't have to come to individuals personally. They could escape from the judgment to come. It's what Peter preached to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Escape from the wrath to come by being saved, by, being, by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus. But Amos preached during a wicked king. His name was Jeroboam II. It's interesting. From Jeroboam I, he's the first king of the northern kingdom, to Jeroboam II, which is the, technically the last king uh, under uh, the kingdom of Israel, a lot of time had happened. And one of the things that happened was idolatry permeated the land through, his, the, through the first king, Jeroboam I. Now, they were not related. They just had the same name. And Jeroboam I is the one that is blamed all the time for introducing idolatry into Israel. Now, if you want to be technical, who was the first king who introduced idolatry uh, to the people of Israel? No, before him. Solomon, yeah. Solomon, and I wish I could go into a detail. Maybe we'll do it in, I, I, I'll, maybe I'll do it in Australia. So I'll put it that way, and I'll, and I'll bring it back here. Solomon introduced so much idolatry... He worshipped the god of sexuality, right? Ashereth, right? He worshipped the god of success, Milcom. He worshipped the god of violence. He worshipped all these different gods. Why? Because he wanted to please his wives. He had many wives, right? And you know the joke, right? uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. What do you do with so many mother-in-laws? You tell me, right? But he pleased them all. He built, you know, he built temples all over the place. And um, remember the story? He built them far away. He built them far away up in the mountains. Oh, honey, they're so far away. I can't go out there. It's too far. Okay, honey, I'll build the temples to your gods a little bit closer. Oh, honey, they're too far still. I can't go out there and and worship, you know, Baal. It's too far. It's outside the city. Fine, I'll bring him in the house. You know, Solomon being a good husband, right? That's what you're supposed to do, right? Just do whatever your wife says. No. And uh, no, husband said amen. All right, so that tells me something. And, um, and then, oh, honey, it, you know, when I go to the temple, I want to see my gods there. It's not fair that only your God is worshiping in your temple. And so he brought them into the house of the Lord. And they were certain being worshiped in the house of the Lord. Now, this is not to say you shouldn't listen to your wife, that your wife always gives you bad, bad advice. It is to say that those women gave Solomon completely terrible advice. And the Bible says his heart was captivated by them and he turned his heart from God and he gave it to them. And it went down that way. Idolatry was introduced and the northern kingdom just absorbed it, just completely absorbed it. And it was a curse to them. It was a curse to them that they never got over, by the way. From the first Jeroboam who introduced to the northern kingdom, what Solomon was doing, to the last true king of Israel, Jeroboam II, idolatry never left the northern kingdom. They did it over and over and over again. And they did it by saying, we're still worshiping God, but we'll keep our idols too. There's a big compromise. It's still idolatry. God considered it idolatry of the worst form because you're saying... This golden calf and this Baal and this Asherah, they represent my God. Well, you know, you ever hear people say, well, I think God is like, you know, I know what the Bible says, but I think, I think God is more creative. He's more spiritually open to a lot of things. So I can, I can do yoga and I can do all these things. And, and I know I can, it's, I know it's not in the Bible, but 
I think God is very okay with me to do that. You know, it is on the road to idolatry. You're worshiping other things in the name of the Lord. And they have holy yoga now and all kinds of things. Anyway, it's a whole other story. They're the example of what happens to a people that compromise with idolatry. They had a chance to turn away, by the way. Amos is not the only one who came to them. Hosea came to them. They heard the messages of Elijah, Elisha, powerful ministries. I mean, just read it. We're doing the study with Amber's, uh, at Amber's house uh, on Saturdays about Elisha. We moved from Elijah to Elisha. Powerful ministries. Why wouldn't they turn? Why can they never turn away? Is an example of what sin does. If you never cut off sin, it'll always be in your house. It'll always be in your life. And they've had the chances. They had the Bible. They had the Holy Spirit. They had prophets. They had teachings, but they never dealt with the sin. Did you notice that? If when you read about the kingdom of Israel, they never dealt with the sin. Nobody ever says, you know what our issue is? Idolatry. We worship other things more than God. Nobody ever said that. They, they simply just relegated it to some you know, political issue. And they worship God in Baal, or, or the, 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 they worship the, the, their gods in, in, in Bethel, which is the house of God. I mean, can you imagine the house of God being a place of worship? And you can see the archaeology there, the golden calf and all the things, all the way from Bethel all the way to Dan. I've been to both. And Dan, you could still see it. You could still see the remains, the ruins of the false priest and how they would worship God. And they were, but they were actually worshiping other gods. Still there. Um, in Israel, they just see it as like a, it's, it's like a recreational park of history, museum. I think as Christians, we go, oh, my goodness, it's here. You know, is that what the Bible says? Then finally came Assyria. And Syria is the judgment of God upon a sinful nation and the unrepentant nation because of idolatry. And God brought judgment unto them. He sees, Hosea, uh, Amos sees the judgment in, in three different ways. He first sent a plague of locusts, a fire, and a plumb line. Those are the ones we, we looked at last time. Three different visions, three different judgments. Anybody remember what they were? Right? The locusts took all the land, right? basically stripped all the food. There was a famine. The fire basically did what the, what the locusts couldn't do. It was, it was a picture of the eternal judgment. And then the plumb line was to show them that they were not right. Maybe a plumb line measures 90-degree angles to see if you're right, if you're straight. If you're crooked, you'll find out pretty soon through a plumb line that you're crooked. The plumb line is God's word. If you stand next to God's word, it'll show you that you're crooked, Right? And when you admit that you're crooked, it's when the hope comes in. If you admit that, you know, if you admit that you're crooked versus the plumb line of God's righteousness, there's hope for you. If you don't, only judgment to come. And uh, same for us, by the way. You look at the plumb line and go, oh, good, that's, that was for them. No, it's for us today. When God brings a standard of righteousness, we don't measure up to it. What's God's standard of righteousness? The law, his word. Nobody measures up to it. Nobody could. Yeah? Uh, and if we don't repent of not measuring up to God's word, then we don't stand a chance. Jesus made it very clear. He made it clear that we are sinful. He made it clear that he paid the price for us. He made it clear that he rose again for us. He made it clear that he will judge us according to his standards and righteousness. But if we repent, we will have forgiveness of sin. That we, we pass on from judgment to life. And, um, and because we don't measure up, only judgment can be the result of it, unless we repent. And this is the reality of people today that keep rejecting God. This is the reality. 
And it's the, it's the plumb line that really deals with it. Now, there was a man who didn't like Amos, just like many people that preach righteousness are people that don't like him. His name was Amaziah. This is chapter 7, by the way. And in chapter 7, he told Amos, get out of here. We don't want to hear you talking about judgment. And Amos said, you know what? I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I am not a career religious leader. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a man who been called by the Lord. I've been a man to, I'm, I'm, I've been commanded by the Lord to preach to you about the things that are coming. And by the way, Am, uh, Amaziah's attitude was the attitude of Israel toward Amos. They didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like what he had to say about their sin and about the judgment to come. And so they wanted him out of here. That was the attitude toward the message of God. Remember, Amos is like the word of God. He brings the word of God to them. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. And so he tells them to leave. And Amos speaks. He gives his testimony. Chapter 7, not as a professional leader, religious leader, but as a, a nobody, literally, a farmer and basically somebody who watches over trees. And I think this is a good, good example of what it's going to be like in the last days. I think God's going to use not professional religious leaders. I think God's going to use people, everyday people, humble people, people that rely on the Lord, not the strong and mighty, but the poor and the humble, the one that really relies on the Lord. So it'll be like that in our generation. Simplicity, simplicity that by our lives, we can show people that God is real, that God is powerful. And, uh, and we're not about the world and we're not about the prosperity and the pleasures of this world or the popularity, but about the Lord. And that's who God's going to use more than anything else. So um, we, can, we can show that. We can be different. And this is what Amos was like. Amos was in, in stark contrast to the affluence, to the wealth of Israel. Remember, we've been telling about how much they oppressed the poor, how much they made money. You find out today that they really love money so much they couldn't wait for church to be over so they can go and make some money. Now, they didn't go to church per se, but it was in... Uh, it was about the Sabbath. They couldn't wait for all these, you know, boring stuff that happened on the Sabbath and they can get on with making money. That's all they live for. And here comes this poor guy, this poor farmer, preaching the word of God to them and telling them, if you don't repent, you're going to, you're going to be severely judged by the Lord of righteousness, the Lord of hosts, actually uses that term. And a terrible punishment happened to Amaziah and a terrible punishment is going to happen to Israel. And so these were the lessons from last time, an unconverted man, right? Unconverted man, oh, I didn't finish that sentence. Tremendously resent judgment. An unconverted man tremendously resent, that should be say, tremendously resent, resent judgment. Second lesson was people grumble. People grumble about things, about people who preach about judgment. Oh, here we go again. Here comes Frank talking about what's wrong with the world and how God's going to deal with it. And people grumble, and we hear it sometimes. Maybe sometimes not that much, but um, people don't like to hear the message because it pricks the heart, and it deals with the unbelief and the sin of people. Paul said to a bunch of Greek know-it-alls, the philosophers of his day, that God has appointed one man to come and to judge this world, and he proved it by raising him from the dead, Jesus so if we love Jesus, we have to accept the fact that he's not only our savior, but if we don't turn to him, he would be our judge. And so the Bible speaks of it very clearly. And an unconverted man and people around religious circles don't like to hear that. 
They just like to hear that Jesus is a nice man who pats people on the head and tells them to turn the other cheek. Well, one day Jesus is going to come like a lion, the Bible says. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's not coming to... Remember, Amos uses... There's five words in Hebrew for a lion that roars, and they're different. There's a lion who roars because he's uh, hungry. There's a lion that roars because he's tired, or he woke up. There's a lion that roars because he's about to hunt, and he uses that specific word, a lion who's about to jump on its prey and kill it. And that's the word that Amos uses for God. God is about, he's roaring. He's about to jump on the prey. Uh, A lion is about to jump on the prey. And that's the picture of God ready to bring judgment to a people that don't want to repent. They'd rather keep going and doing their own thing. And finally, a true prophet or a true preacher in this case, Amos, must be willing to preach what he's for and what he's against. And that's absolutely true. A true preacher will always tell you what he's for and what he's against. If you only hear what he's for, then you really don't know what he stands against. If he only, if he only tells you what he's against, you probably don't even know what he's for. And we need to know both. And we need to know both. All right, so now, chapter 8. Thus says the Lord, I'm sorry, thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now, this is the fourth vision, remember? The locust, the fire, the plumb line. Now, here comes the summer fruit. And you're like, what kind of an interesting vision is that? Well, it's a, it's a vision that's going to introduce the ultimate judgment, which will be called the day of the Lord, which he already talked about it a little bit uh, in chapter 5. It was, behold, don't wish for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very, very trouble, a day of trouble, a day of darkness and thick gloom. It's not going to be fun. Don't wish for the day of the Lord. The, Israel was saying, let God bring a judgment. We're his people. We're going to be spared. Amos says, don't. Don't ask for it because you won't be spared. In fact, you will be the object of his wrath. And of course, that's happened to Israel, right? Assyria came. It was like a type of the day of the Lord. Now, we expand the day of the Lord to make it uh, what the book of Revelation speaks about, the day of Yahweh's wrath on the whole earth. This basket of summer fruit is basically... Amos, being a, uh, an agricultural guy, uh, was a very, very reasonable idea. In Israel, you have the end of the harvest, the end of the summer. The fruit that comes out at the end has to be consumed very quickly. You want to know why? Yeah, it has a very short, short shelf life. If you, if you pick it in the spring, it has a longer shelf life. Fruit that is at the end of the summer, now, very important, at the end of the summer, has a very short Shelf life, if they even have a shelf life at all. You have to eat it very quickly, otherwise it'll go bad. Why? Because it's ripe. It's overly ripe, and therefore the fruit cannot be kept. You have to eat it right away, otherwise it goes into rottenness. Okay, everybody good? Now, what he says here, and and forgive me for the Hebrew lesson if you don't mind. What do you see, Amos? Right. So God has to show him this. By the way, this is an important thing. God has to show him. Amos couldn't see it unless God showed it to him. So this is an important thing. What do you see, Amos? I said, a basket of summer fruit. The word for summer fruit is kais, 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 right? Or kayas, if you want to put it that way, right? And it's basically the word that means summer fruit. But it has another word right next to it, and it's the word for end, or the end, or the climax. And it's the word for case, 
Caius and case almost sounds the same thing. In Hebrew, is even more, uh, the pronunciation is even more closer to that. Caius and case. Summer fruit, the end. It's a Hebrew pun. It's a Hebrew play on words. When you use a word that sounds the same, and they're connected together in a verse or two in the context, it's trying to say the same thing. What the, the hearers would have understood it. You know, in, in English, we don't have it that way. In English, we have it more like a rhyme. And if something rhymes, then it's like, okay, that's the pattern. But here is the, the, the sounding of the word. The sounding of the word gives you the understanding that those two words are connected. Now, how is summer fruit and the end or climax connected? Well, a basket of summer fruit is coming to an end, right? K's. A, the end of something, right? The end of something, like a climax, is the word case. God's word is saying, just like the fruit is coming to an end, you're coming to an end. Just like there's a, a little bit of time left before the end comes for the fruit, so it is for you. You're coming to an end. And summer fruit has the same, so it's the same root word. In Hebrew, it's the same root word for fruit, summer fruit, as it is for the word end. The same root word, because it means the same thing. Harvest is over. Rottenness is about to set in. Just as the same thing. The heart of man is rotten. Rottenness is about to fully be ripe. And God's judgment is going to come. It's going to come to the end. And Israel is so ripe for judgment that it's ready to go rotten. It's ready to go. The same word is used in Ezekiel, by the way. Ezekiel chapter 7, if you want to read it on your own. Same word, case, comes up again. But Ezekiel's not talking about Israel. It's talking about Judah. 150 years later, Judah is going to go through the same thing. An end is going to come to Judah because of their sin. And then it says here in, in verse 2, I will spare them no longer. So it tells you right there what God is thinking. Now, how did it end? We're talking about the end of Israel, the end of the northern kingdom. Let's turn to 2 Kings if you want to follow along. 2 Kings chapter 15, a little bit to your left. And 2 Kings is going to tell us a little bit about the end. Now, you can read Chronicles as well, but I figure this one's probably the easiest one to deal with. 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. And look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 8. In the the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. Now, in the 30th year of Azariah, king of Judah. So when the king of Judah was named Azariah, another king in Israel came along, and his name was Zechariah. And he was the son of Jeroboam II, the guy that we've been talking about. So after he died, his son Zechariah came into the throne, and he lasted for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and as his fathers had done, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, not his dad, but the first king of Israel, which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, struck him before the people, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the Acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So you can go back and read Chronicles when you can. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. 
So Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahim, son of Gadi, went up to Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he became king in his place. So notice, after Jeroboam dies, his son takes over and they kill him. Then the guy who gets who killed Zechariah gets killed and another person gets killed and so these you have this attempted coup one after another it is a descending into chaos and lawlessness and further anarchy this is what happened to Israel in the last days of Samaria now the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made behold they are written in the book of chronicles and the kings of Israel now these men were not related they were just one person attacking another person and then finally, the last king of Israel comes. Then Menachim struck Tipshah and all who were in it and its borders from Tirzah because they did not open to him. Therefore, he struck and ripped all its women who were with child. So, you know, this, this idea of the, this violence of killing babies in the womb was for a long time ago. It's been, it's been for a while. And, and obviously, this kind of echoes a little bit of what happened to Israel uh, a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. In the thirty-ninth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of God, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. So on it goes. This is the this is the the chaos that is descending. Now I want to jump down to verse twenty-nine. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tilgath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured. Uh, Jon and Abelic Makkah and Janoah and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali and he carried them into captivity to Assyria. And Hoshea the son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah the son of Remalah and struck him and put him to death and became the king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham the son of Uzziah. So it's murder, murder, babies are killed, women are killed, one after another. Why? It's the judgment of God. It's descending into chaos. Go back to the book of Amos. This is the last days of Judah. It's coming to an end. You see how it ended? It didn't end good. Almost you don't want to read that for your devotional life. You know, this is like really, really bad. But this is, this is what happens when a nation or a people turns away from the Lord. Now, we could apply it to our nation, but it's specifically more applicable to the people of God, because Israel was the people of God. They were, they were actually God's people. He called them. These are my people. And so what we can see in our time is God allowed this idolatry to continue, by the way. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and they did not repent. They had God's grace. They fell into sin. They destroyed each other, and on and on and on it went. By the way, that's on the national level. We put it, you can see it in the political level. But you know, apostate churches are just the same. Apostate churches are just the same. They don't do the things that will keep them in the grace of God. Just like Israel did not continue in the grace of God, there are many churches today in apostasy that do not follow along with the grace of God, to keep themselves in the grace of God. They don't do what God calls them to do. And eventually, just like happened to Israel, it would happen to churches.
It, it's been on mute. There it is. Okay. It's been on mute for a while. Okay. Add. We'll be sharing again when we get to Australia. We'll, we'll dive into that, that particular part of it because it's applicable to what happened in Australia. But we'll get to that there. Now, it happened. It's going to happen to Israel. It happened to Israel. It happened to Judah. It's going to happen to apostate churches. The same thing. The chaos, the, 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 the idolatry, they all fall into it. They all fall into idolatry. They don't follow along. They don't deal with the, the issue of sin in their lives. Now, the issue of fruit, I want to finish it off. The issue of fruit is important because fruit is always in the Bible an illustration of something very unique. It's an illustration of a life that's given to God. You give your life over to God, and the result of that life, the result of that life is your fruit. That's right, the fruit. And it could be bad and it could be good, right? So if you give your life over to Christ, the result will be good fruit. If you turn away from Christ, the result will be Bad fruit. It's very simple. Jesus put it that way. Good fruit, bad fruit, bad trees, good trees, right? And there's the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of repentance. They're all related, but they have a different aspect to it. The, the, the clearest one, it's in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, which has to do with, of course, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, which is really the divine character of Jesus. So when you read the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, there's nine of them. But it's singular, right? This is the oddity in, in the book of Galatians. In the Greek, there's nine fruits, but yet it's used of singular, the fruit of the Spirit. And the first one is love. That's right. The first one is love. And it's the divine character of Jesus. The whole nine descriptions, right? There's one fruit, nine descriptions of that fruit, and it's the divine character of Jesus who is being built up in you. Right? is being conformed into the image of God and to the image of Christ. So when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, you literally are talking about how am I emulating Christ? And if you go through all nine of them, Jesus fits perfectly, every single one of them, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Is Jesus love? Is Jesus joy? Is Jesus peace, righteousness, faithfulness, right? All these things, self-control, all these things are part of the divine character of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. When you are conforming to the image of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is evident. Paul says there's another thing that is in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit, and those are the deeds of the flesh. Those are the deeds of the flesh, right? So uh, what is the, the most common story about the fruit? It's, of course, go back to the garden. It was the original sin. It was the original sin to go after the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the fruit of the tree of life, right? It goes back to that. And it's interesting that when you when when they sin, right, they wanted to sew fig leaves together, right? But God had to clothe them. God had to clothe them in the skin of an animal who died and was sacrificed, but they wanted to have fig leaves. They wanted to have fig leaves. Uh, which makes sense when Jesus cursed the fig tree in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, toward the end of his life, toward the end of his ministry, Mark chapter eleven, he looked at the fruit, he looked for fruit in the tree. And what did he find? Nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Why? And he cursed it. It was a symbol of what was going to happen to Israel. They had all the leaves, but had no fruit. Israel, which the, which the leaves, by the way, were basically men's attempt, good works. Now, good works are important, but if without the fruit, they're absolutely meaningless. Israel had... The fruit, I mean, Israel had the leaves, 
It even says in Mark, they had nothing but leaves, but they had no fruit of the Spirit, so they were cursed. And then the judgment came upon Israel at the time of Jesus. So the spiritual life of Jesus was not in Israel, and Jesus knew about it. And he condemned the generation of his days because they wouldn't follow him. Now, let's go back to the book of Amos. Because we're going to finish tonight. Promise. We'll go quickly. When the, verse 5, when the new moon be over, that you may sell grain and the Sabbath, that you may open up the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, to cheat and dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Well, what it's just talking about here is how they were ripping people off to such degree they couldn't wait to go back and make money. Right? The new moon, right? the new moon and the Sabbath, they couldn't wait for that new moon to be over and the Sabbath to be over that we may open up the wheat market. Now, the only thing that restricted them is that on the Sabbath they couldn't do any work. But it was almost like they were counting down. Okay, where can I get this thing done? And they were... Uh, making the shekel bigger. These are some of the inscriptions that archaeologically we have found of how they would measure one shekel, and they had different stones and different weights, right? But they were playing with the weights. They actually were making dishonest scales. It says in Proverbs, a dishonest scale, an unbalanced scale is an abomination to the Lord. This is physically, literally what they were doing. They were making the shekel bigger. (laughs) They were charging more, right? And the wheat was actually getting smaller because when you compare the two, right? So one, one is heavier than the other, of course. And uh, if you make it heavy, you get less wheat, right? So they were ripped. What's that? Yeah, inflation. They were charging people more money for a lot less food. And they were doing it through dishonest gains. They were going through the scales. They were, they were playing with the scales. By the way, the, words, the, 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 the idea of scales is basically how... Uh, Proverbs says the, the unbalanced and unjust balance is an abomination to the Lord. Right? It's talking about this for sure, but you know what its application is? It's how you render judgment in your own life. Right? Do you treat one person better than the other? Right? That's an abomination to the Lord. Meaning that you, you, you have high favoritism for this person, but you disregard the other person. You judge them differently. And it happens a lot. It happens in ministry. Happens to believers a lot. You tend to favor one over the other. Oh, this person sinned. Oh, I can't believe you sinned. Get out of here. The other person sinned. Oh, it's all right, brother. You know, that's an abomination to the Lord. It's an, they sinned the same way, but you just treated them differently. Why? Because you have an unjust balance. You have an unjust scale, right? And uh, that is an abomination to the Lord. You know, it's the same thing with, you know, false teachers, Right? Oh, I can't believe that guy's false. He's a false teacher, right? Then the false teacher that you like comes on. He says some crazy thing. Oh, that's all right. I know what he means. That's an abomination to the Lord. An unjust scale. Same thing. It happens all the time. Just Christians don't even realize what they were doing. Now, they went too far. They became so greedy and such business-driven. And here's the description of what they're going to do. They were literally going to, uh, to the helpless for the money. They were going to basically lend them money, and then the, they were going to even finance sandals so they can sell them more wheat. So they, they were completely, I mean, when you, when you finance someone, when, you own, when they owe you something, you own them, basically. And the debt was so high that the rich actually owned the poor. 
and you were not allowed to do that in Israel, that they were violating the word of God. Now let's go to verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Israel was proud. Israel was proud. I will never forget any of their deeds. Now when God speaks like that, you're in trouble. It is only because of Jesus he forgets our sins. Not only does he forgive our sins, he forgets our sin, the Bible says. Not with Israel here. He will not forget their deeds. Why would he not forget them? Their pride. The pride of Jacob. And he was going to, it says, because of this, we will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, it will go up like the Nile and be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. An earthquake was going to come so devastating, it was going to make the land go up and down like the Nile River. If you know anything about the Nile, the rain comes in and it goes up. The tide goes up and then it subsides and it goes low, right? So that's, that's the, the very basics uh, of the Nile River, right? Rain comes in, fills it up, then it drains out and it goes down. The land was going to go up and down because of the great earthquake. And it says, it'll come about in that day that declares the Lord that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your sons into lamentations and it'll bring about sackcloth in everyone's loins and baldness in everyone's head, everyone's head and I will make it like the time of mourning for an only son. In the end, it will be like a bitter day. It's quite interesting. Turn your festivals to mourning, sackcloth, darkness, earthquakes, bitterness for an only son. Does anyone know when this happened? You know, this, this event did happen. It was partially fulfilled in an event in the New Testament. The crucifixion, 100%. Notice this thing. The three of the four Gospels tells us that when Jesus died, the sun went down at what time? It was 12 noon. It was actually, according to the Roman time, it was noon. And the sunlight failed. And it was that's when you have another day. According to the Jewish calendar, it would have been a different day. Right, so the sun goes down from dark to light. It's like a different day. The sun goes down, and it was miraculous because it went down at noon. This is from the book of Amos. I will make the sun go down in broad daylight. For about three hours, the book of Luke says, there has only been a few times where God intervenes directly with man's time. It's only been a few times. Can anyone tell me one of them? Well, we know one of them. Jesus on the cross, right? He intervened. He made the sun went down at noon. What was that? Yeah. That's right. Very good, Frank. Just testing you. Good. All right. That's two. Joshua's extended day. Remember, Joshua's in battle. It pleased the Lord. It said, Lord, please, Lord, can you extend our day? And he made the sun stand still. That's number three. There's one other time. It hasn't happened yet, put it that way. I'll give you a hint. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you. It's in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation says we'll have 16-hour days during the book of Revelation. During the trumpet judgments, it'll be 16-hour days. God intervenes in time and cuts the time from 24 hours to 16 hours. Fascinating, isn't it? Here in the little book of Amos, we have a prophecy of Jesus on the cross, bitterness, darkness. What else does it say? Earthquakes? Yeah, there's an earthquake. Matthew 27 tells us there was a great earthquake when Jesus died. In fact, when the centurion turned to, to the Lord, 
who was there guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared God greatly. And the earth shook and the rocks split and the, tomb, the tombs were broken open. That's a fascinating story for another time. The people resurrected when Jesus died. So quite amazing story. All that happened within the crucifixion period. And yet this is prophesied in the book of Amos. Now, eventually, we're going to see this very same things happen in the book of Revelation. Massive earthquakes, right? The sun will turn into darkness and the moon into blood in the great day of the Lord. And there will be massive earthquakes in Jerusalem. That's going to make people realize that God is in charge, that God is now in charge of, uh, of this world. He's always been in charge. But it just seems like men lived without God being in charge. But it's only going to get worse, That was supposed to be a joke. It's only going to get worse because it says in verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will send famine into the land. Oh, man, more? But not not that kind of famine. Not a famine of the bread or the thirst for water, but rather of the hearing of the word of God. A famine of not of bread nor of water, but there's a famine of the word of God. Now, there's a famine coming to America. There's a famine coming to the whole world. That don't mean just store up food. I'm talking about store up your Bibles. Store up your Bibles in your heart. It doesn't mean we don't, well, we won't have Bibles. We will have Bibles. We have them here. Remember the future and we won't have them. But we have plenty of Bibles right now. What does it mean, the hearing of the Word of God? I think this is happening even today. It's gradual. It's, it's a process. But eventually you'll get to the point where nobody will hear the Word of God. Society is not interested in the Word of God. And the church is not preaching the Word of God. So in one, on the one hand, society could care less. They'd rather do anything else. They'd rather go through anything else than the Word of God. But preachers don't want to preach anymore the Word of God. They say, oh, society doesn't want to hear it, so I'm going to stop preaching it. No, that's when you really need to preach it more is when society doesn't want to hear it, right? Um, that's what people travel miles and miles and miles to come to a church, not just this church, other churches too. And the funny thing is critics, there'll always be critics, right? They'll always be crazy. Why are you traveling so much? What are you going to a cult or something like that? What are you going? You know, and then you know, that's been called out here. Yeah, and uh, but none, none of the critics, and always in challenge. None of the critics ever ask the people that come to the church from far away, "Why do you come?" Because if you ask them, they would say, "Because there's a famine. I can't find anywhere. I mean, there's tons of churches, but are they preaching?" That's, that's, the, that's the plumb line, right? That's the plumb line that we have to hold to. Are they preaching the word? Are you hearing God's word? I'm not saying hearing a verse out of context and a lot of hype and a lot of craziness, right? I'm talking about an exegetical study of the word of God where it's challenge your heart to really follow Jesus, where it's dealing with your sin when it's really telling you this is what God is saying. That's the hearing of the word of God. And at some point, as we get closer to the time of Jesus' return, Jesus says, work while you have the light. Night will come. No man can work. There'll be very little and hardly anybody preaching the word of God anymore because there'll be a lack of hearing. And not only a lack of hearing, nobody will ever be preaching it. Why? Because it'll be a time of very difficult times, a time of great persecution that basically, you know how it was like, uh, it was illegal for a Jew to be in Germany around the time of the Second World War? In the future, it will be illegal to be a Christian at the time of the Antichrist. That's, that's, that's what it's going to be like. It will be illegal to be a Christian. It will be illegal to preach. It will be illegal to do certain things. And you kind of see how the, the world is changing that concept in their mind about we don't like Jews, we don't like Christians, we don't want to hear the word of God, we just want to do violence. And this is while yet the restrainer, the Bible says the restrainer is still restraining. But there's going to be a famine. 
There's a famine today in our churches. There's a famine today in our schools. Nobody preaches the word of God. Friends go out there and get Bibles out, but they don't let them do it anymore. Not as much, right? But in universities and hospitals and society, the preaching and the teaching of the word of God is becoming less and less the hearing. So this is what's going to happen in the future. There's a famine coming. So hold on to your scriptures. Hold them in your heart that you're not sinned against the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, it says, from the north and to the east, and they will go and seek the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. Things are going to get so bad in Israel, people are going to try to go and find it. And people are going to try to find, go from place to place, but it's not going to be able to find it. And look what it says here. And in the future, it'll be the same thing here. In the days of the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. And for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and those who say, God lives, oh Dan, that's where the, the idols were. And as they say to Beersheba, and as, uh, and as the way of Beersheba lives, then they will fail and not rise again. Who is this going to affect the most? It says young virgins and young men. Beautiful virgins and young men. Who are they? Young people. That's right. It'll hit the younger generation much more than the older generation. This is what Amos says. As the older generation passes on, the new generation won't be able to hear God's word as clear. They won't care for God's word as much. And because they have no foundation, because they, they're young, they won't be able to revert back to what they had. See, if you're older, right? Anybody older, right? You can always say, I was brought up a certain way. I have a background. I can go back to where I learned and what I did, right? As a young person, you don't have that. It's been built, but if you don't have it, you can't revert back to that. And so young people are going to get hit the most. And what it, it's interesting, young people are hit, are hit just as much as Israel was hit during the time of Amos and Isaiah. Isaiah laments at this in chapter 2, and he says, Oh, my people, they have been seduced. They've been abandoned, your people. Uh, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. You know what's come to our nation? What's coming to the Christian church, to say the most, to say the least, is all these mysticism, all this idea of New Age and Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism. Where do they come from? The east, not the north, not the south, right? They are coming from the east. East, we call it Eastern mysticism, right? Wicca, witchcraft, all this stuff came from Eastern ideas that eventually developed into the Western culture. And the young generation in Israel didn't have the memories of godliness. They didn't say, well, I was godly at one time. I'm going to go back to the faith of, that I used to have. They were too young. They never had it. And Isaiah laments, and it says, oh, my people are affected by the influences of the East. You know, the church is no different today. A lot of young people, they get into all kinds of Eastern ideas and mysticism and yoga. I told you earlier, New Age practices and Kabbalah. It's cool to be that. Yeah, Ouija boards and, you know, the, 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 there's Christian mysticism. That has nothing to do with Christianity. And I met young people today, and they're stuck in it. In meditation, and they took hallucinogen drugs just to find some kind of spirituality, and they're searching because there's a famine, and they're thirsty, and nobody's preaching. There's a hearing. There's a famine of hearing. There's a famine. Nobody's telling them. You can say one thing. Maybe they don't want to hear it. But you can say the other thing. Nobody's telling them. Aren't you glad somebody told you? Praise God. Somebody told you. That's the, that's the beauty of it. Now, as we finish, 763 B.C., something happened in Israel. Two years after Amos began preaching, this is back to chapter 1, verse 1, there's a great earthquake. And don't take my word for it. Look it up. 
there's a great earthquake of 763 BC. It's, in, it's written in Jewish history. It's written in the Bible twice. Amos and Zechariah speak about it. And it happened during the King Uzziah, during the reign of King Uzziah of Judah. And it happened with an eclipse. An eclipse happened at the same time an earthquake happened, a massive earthquake. And it made such an impression that two of the prophets wrote about it. And if they only would have listened and if they only would have heard, they would have understood that what Amos said was true. And you know what happened to the cities? Their fortified cities crumbled and it made it easier for Assyria to come and destroy them. Why? They had no protection anymore. They had built up these awesome cities, these awesome places, and now all of a sudden, nothing. An earthquake leveled the place. And you can still see it. Archaeological findings tell us, you know, where the ridge is and, and, and some of the catastrophe that happened. And, but you know what? God had mercy on them because Amos was still preaching. We know what happened at the end. Yes, we have history to tell us that. But they were listening to Amos. And God had mercy on them because he sent Amos. And Amos, well, the prophet said, why should you die, says the Lord? Why should you die? God would have rather have mercy on you. In fact, it is God's nature to actually want to save the sinner instead of judging the sinner first. Remember when the woman caught in adultery came to Jesus? What did Jesus do? He didn't judge her right away. He said, forgive you. Where are your accusers? I do not condemn you. It is the Messiah's nature to deal with the sinner and bring the sinner close to himself and re- rehab the sinner and put him on the righteous road before he judges them. It's never God's character to just judge somebody without ever giving them a chance. It's, it's never. And this is one of them. God had mercy on them, and they didn't repent. And this is the end of Israel. However, it's not the end of Amos. If it was the end of Amos, it would have been, wow, what a, what a you know, anticlimactic ending. They got judged. There's one chapter left. And in that chapter, we see the sunshine comes out. Because after the horrific judgments against Israel we have this verse that comes out. And it's, about, it's a prophecy that's going to come about that God is not done with Israel. In fact, he's not going to raise up the temple of Solomon again. He's going to raise up something spiritually. He's going to raise the fallen tabernacle of David. And you're like, what does that have to do with me? Everything? You want to know? I'll leave you for November. Now, I'll... I'll it's going to be a while since we get to Amos chapter 9, so I'll tell you now. Um, but I won't tell you the whole thing. At the end of the prophecy of the northern kingdom, God says to Amos, Amos, go back to the same people and tell them that I'm going to raise them up again. That even though they sinned so bad and God is not to be mocked as he, he judged them and it was terrible. And the plumb line measured them and they, they were crooked, but they didn't want to seek God. They didn't want to seek God and live. God is going to give a future generation a time to repent and come back to him. And this is what's going to happen to Israel. But when they come back, God's going to open up something even more profound. He's going to raise up other people to join Israel. And this chapter is used in the book of Acts by the church, by the early church, by James, to tell us that God is not done with Israel and he's actually expanded by bringing Gentiles, by bringing non-Jews into the Messiah, into Jesus, we have the tabernacle of David, not the, te- not the temple of Solomon, but the tabernacle of David will be fulfilled when believers that are not Jews are brought in 
and the church becomes full of Jews and of Gentiles. And that's going to be not a temple made with hands, but a temple that is made with living stones. We're going to find out in the New Testament. And he's going to rebuild, and he's going to redeem his people, and there's going to be a whole other people with them, Jew and Gentile, believing in Jesus, following Jesus, and it's going to be called the Tabernacle of David. Fascinating, isn't it? In the whole book of Acts and how the Gentiles came in, it's based on this verse in chapter 9 of Amos. So don't sell Amos short. He could see quite clear and quite a bit. And the New Testament explains this when Paul and Barnabas are sent out to bring Gentiles into the, into the fold. And this is the prophecy of Amos. He will have Gentiles in the body of Jesus as well as Jews because he's going to restore them as well. But he has to first rebuild us, rebuild the, the tabernacle of David. Isn't that good news? Like God is never done with his people. He's going to bring his fulfillment to pass. And it's, it's really up to us to really join him in his work, join him in his ministry, join him in his service. So what did we learn? Well, a lot. And uh, let's pray first, and then we can, we can chat about what we learned. So I want to make sure that we can finish our study uh, as, as we finish chapter 8. Lord, we are so thankful tonight that you brought us closer by the preaching of your word, by the teaching of Jesus. You brought us a little bit closer. And perhaps, Lord, we feel really far away because we're, you know, we're struggling with our own lives, our own problems, our own issues, our own difficulties. And, and, and we haven't thought much of you. We haven't thought much of your work in, the, in this world. But, Lord, we're... We're right back into reality. We're set back into a proper focus that is not about our lives. It's about your work in our lives, about your work in this world and how you're bringing history to a culmination to fulfill your will and purpose. And Lord, it includes the Jews that are in the land today. It includes Gentiles, the body of Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles all over the world. And you're going to bring them into one fold and one Messiah. And Amos saw it, and he called it the tabernacle of David will be restored. Oh, Lord, we can't wait to see what it has to say because James saw it and preached it. The early church believed it. Help us, Lord God, to see it and believe it. And to fulfill it, Lord God, we also can rebuild the tabernacle of David by bringing believers, by bringing Gentiles and Jews into the body of Christ, by preaching your word and through evangelism and through discipleship, we can bring more into the tabernacle of David. Oh, Lord, may you use us. Like you use Amos, a simple shepherd, a simple farmer. You brought him to become a great prophet. Lord, we don't see great things for ourselves. We ask you that you would use us. But Lord, you can use the lowly. You can use the humble. Help us to humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen.